0: Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively Build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Nonprofit Nation. As usual, I'm your host, Julia Campbell. And I am thrilled that you have me in your earbuds today, in your car, folding your laundry, driving, working out, whatever you're doing. I'm just so excited that you're gonna be spending some time with me today. Now, my guest is a very special guest because this is a topic that I actually really don't know anything about. So if you don't know anything about cryptocurrency, crypto philanthropy, if you don't know anything about the giving block, If all of this kind of just makes your head spin, then this is definitely the episode for you. So I'm going to be learning along with you. My guest is Pat Duffy, and Pat created The Giving Block with co-founder Alex Wilson in 2018 to develop the leading solutions that charities, universities, and other nonprofits use to fundraise cryptocurrencies. And they quickly established themselves as the leading crypto fundraising experts through the explosive growth of their programs at Save the Children and United Way Worldwide. And over the last four years, the giving block has turned cryptocurrency into the fastest-growing donation method, founding the industry's giving pledge, giving days, and crowdfunding platform. So I can't wait to dive in. And just a quick hat tip to Josh Hirsch, who is the social media manager for Susan G. Komen, for introducing us. And I know that they do a lot with crypto fundraising, and I can't wait to hear all about it. So, Pat, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yes. How, so how did you get into this work? What spurred the
1: giving block? Oh, my God. Into the, uh, the nonprofit sector. I just kind of stumbled into it, like a, a lot of us do. I was working with pharmaceutical consultants and lobbyists, just kind of helping them work with nonprofits on Capitol Hill. So anytime there was a bill that would uh, affect patient access, whatever it might be, we'd put them all together kind of into coalitions. You go knock on doors. But met a lot of charities. They're doing that work. In the early days, ended up at one, the the Lupus Foundation, as their integration director, just kind of a a leadership transition. So building out the departments there with a, a new leadership framework, figuring out fundraising, best practices it was a good kind of crash course on nonprofit fundraising. And then Alex, my co-founder is the one who got me into trading crypto, got me in end of 2017, which is like the best and the worst time to get into crypto because it's when it exploded up to $20,000 a unit. So I, of course, yolo into all of my positions at the top and just wrote them down right into the dirt, but learned a lot. You know, We saw a couple hundred million dollars in crypto donations that were pretty public during that window. And stars kind of aligned around that. We figured it would be uh, a good place to start investing our time and energy at that intersection.
0: I think this is something that a lot of especially smaller organizations or maybe not to stereotype older generations, but people are not as familiar with. They hear a lot about it. They see the headlines. They know that it's being talked about everywhere. So... For me, my my audience, they're fundraisers, they're marketers, and on top of everything else that they have to master, I'm sure they might be thinking that, you know, the additional hassle of figuring out this new form of donation, you know, cryptocurrency donations may not be worth it. So in your opinion, why should nonprofits care about crypto? I mean, they're correct
1: in a vacuum. That like to try to do it from scratch doesn't make sense. There's a lot of nonprofits who took that approach in the early days. The first I'd say, you know, we interviewed a couple dozen nonprofits in early 2018 before we started the company trying to figure out how they were doing crypto. And they were kind of putting together all the pieces like some Frankenstein monster from a technical standpoint and then best practices, gift acceptance policies, etc. It doesn't make sense to go all in on something like crypto of the time, like it's got to be something you can kind of dip your toe in and open up to a new audience. And then you identify kind of high ROI, low bandwidth efforts that parallel your existing fundraising framework. So a simpler way of putting it for nonprofits who are interested in this, if you are good at the internet, in any basic sense, and if you're good at fundraising in any basic sense, then you absolutely should be fundraising crypto because the pieces we put together here make it super easy. We've got about 1400 nonprofits doing it now building active programs. And if you're not, you know, good at fundraising, good at the internet, then crypto is probably going to be like a lottery ticket for you and you shouldn't run toward it like all the other shiny objects. Like we we tell a lot of nonprofits no through the sales process. They're usually under half a million dollars, let's say in annual budget. And they're looking for kind of a get out of jail free card. So I would just say know yourself and, and who you are, right? If you don't have a stable fundraising framework and stewardship model, crypto is probably a little early. If you have any you know, stability in a full-time social person, it's it's actually pretty easy to get into.
0: So if you are sort of spinning your wheels, chasing all the shiny objects, like you said, if you don't have an established fundraising program infrastructure, and if you don't even have a website, or if you're not using your website effectively, those are kind of red flags, right?
1: Yeah. And for context on all of this, like the way that nonprofits fundraise crypto, generally speaking, you fundraise like an individual giving Model. These people are, you know, Twitter and Reddit, they're running campaigns on social, crowdfunding campaigns, Giving Tuesday type moments are conducive to this. Crypto is a very fun, exciting thing for especially millennials and Gen Zs to attach onto. About 83% of millennial millionaires have crypto at this point. So, in terms of like major gift millennial and Gen Z prospecting, it's one of the best tools in your tool belt. And then you just need to staple it into your existing campaign. So like if you're building a Giving Tuesday campaign from scratch because you want to do crypto Giving Tuesday, it's going to feel like a big lift. But if you've got a whole Giving Tuesday campaign already built out and you want to sprinkle in some crypto messaging for that audience demographic and steward them accordingly, it's a pretty light lift. And the average gift size is about $10,500. So it makes it worth it. So you got to know pretty much and through conversations with us and other folks, how are you from a a general fundraising standpoint, like today, and you can kind of staple it into, you know, your end of year campaign, your gala taxis and messaging, social frameworks. Like it becomes this very light lift sprinkling in if you've got some of your infrastructural components in place already.
0: That's a really great point. And you say on your website, something I found really interesting that accepting cryptocurrency donations is easier than stocks. So how can a nonprofit get started if they're interested accepting crypto donations, like what needs to be in place?
1: I mean, the way that our system works, like you would come to if you go to like thegivingblock.com, there's an accept crypto button. And that starts with like a book, a demo type process where it's like a Q&A and sort of needs assessment. The first thing you want to do is, is what we just described, just have someone who does it professionally run through. A series of questions like What are your fundraising goals? How do you fundraise? Which departments are your core strengths? Like, how's your social media presence? What does your team look like? Figure out if you're innovative in other areas. Figure out okay, you are a very innovative nonprofit in the San Francisco Bay Area with a super young audience or an older audience in the finance sector, and you're trying to get younger. Okay. And you have two million followers on Twitter. Okay. And you run big end of year campaigns. Okay. And you have celebrity partners and a strong corporate partnerships arm. It's like, Yeah. Okay. Crypto is the greatest thing that'll ever happen to you. And then all of the dots along that chart down to the, the many kind of million dollar type nonprofits who have a strong Twitter presence and know the social media game, but they're in a local area and they're sort of building their international audience using crypto. So step one is just having a pro run through in which areas are your strengths and weaknesses when it's going to come to getting into crypto. So you don't start doing like low ROI high bandwidth things like running an NFT drop on your first day. And then if you decide to accept crypto, at that point, it's pretty much the same as opening a bank account. That's why we say it's easier than stocks. It'll be like an hour for the application, probably, just to get through the compliance process. Misconception that crypto isn't regulated, it's aggressively regulated, which is good. That's what keeps everybody safe. But other than filling out that app for an hour, we would generate a widget, which is copy and paste, that goes on the nonprofit site, the nonprofit pastes it on their site. And then everything beyond that is just strategy, which is, again, proportionate to what works best for you. Some nonprofits do very little on the crypto front. They do a little bit, they get a little bit, and they just kind of dip their toe in. Other nonprofits build it into a you know a seven, eight figure revenue stream in their first year. Think like American Cancer Society or Save the Children's.
0: So this is going to totally show my kind of ignorance of cryptocurrency, but- with stocks, when someone donates the stock, really it could go up or down at that point. So is the same for cryptocurrency. Yeah, the
1: beauty of um, the way we do it, most nonprofits use our auto-sell function. So pretty much we're setting up an account that's like a brokerage account. It's like uh, an exchange account, but without all the people and the brokers. It's all just automated. It's just tech instead of people. So that account exists And what happens is, like, if a donor sends you cryptocurrency, as soon as it hits the account, it sells immediately for U.S. dollars so that there isn't a difference in price between the point in which it enters the system and the point in which it cashes out.
0: Okay, that's really important to know, because the prices of all of these different cryptocurrencies are changing and fluctuating so wildly that that's really important for a nonprofit to know. Because to me, for the listener— they might be interested in this, but they're trying to formulate a plan. Like, how can I bring this to my board? You know, how can I bring this to my executive director? How can I convince them that this isn't like playing the stock market? You know, that this is a pretty secure form of donations. And that's actually really, really interesting. And I think we should even take a step back and talk about some of the types of cryptocurrencies. So I know that you wrote that Bitcoin is currently the most popular And that nonprofits should actively be asking for Bitcoin donations at year end. So can you talk more about about that and maybe some of the other currencies we should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, in the nonprofit sector, like the space has gotten so big at this point that Ethereum is the second largest by market cap, but it's actually the most commonly donated at this point. So last year in, in our annual report, which we released, Ethereum passed Bitcoin in terms of total donation volume we processed, which is pretty wild considering how dominant we used to call our Crypto Giving Tuesday campaign with the uh, Giving Tuesday Foundation. We used to literally call it Bitcoin Tuesday because Bitcoin was so dominant. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are like the two top ones. Those two cryptocurrencies, the best way to explain is Bitcoin is sort of like a digital gold. You can't make any more of it. It was the first one that existed. It has brand recognition. And because it uses blockchain, you can't alter transaction records. So long story short is it's like a very safe way to store value digitally. I don't mean safe in terms of price volatility, more so that like with gold, you know, there won't ever be a surge in supply that comes out of nowhere, like what happens with dollars. And if you hold it, you know that no one can move, you know, fake gold onto or off of the system. That's the function that Bitcoin kind of plays. Ethereum is more being built upon. So their code was written in a way where you can build smart contracts and then what are called like layer two protocols. But generally speaking, you just launch different tokens off of Ethereum, which have become very popular. And they experiment with new technologies that make transactions go faster, make them a little more secure, whatever it might be. And then a big thing that happened on the Ethereum network, especially last year, was the rise of NFTs. So non-fungible tokens, pretty much digital art that's tied to a specific cryptocurrency and can be traced along that ledger system so that if you own this digital art just like when you own a unit of bitcoin it's undeniable that you are holding it in this position at this time with a perfectly unchangeable record they're doing that with art on ethereum in a really effective way so
0: right i just listened to the care swisher podcast and she interviewed beeple is that his name the artist that sold his nft artwork at Christie's auction, which I think a lot of people are familiar with for $69 million, but it was in Ethereum. And I thought that was really interesting. And a lot of my listeners might not know what NFTs are. Can you expound on that a little bit? And NFTs are not a cryptocurrency. They are a thing you sell. Yeah, it, it kind of is. And it kind of isn't in the
1: sense that like a cryptocurrency it shouldn't even be called a currency. It's really kind of a unit of value. That can be transferred from position A to position B, but they're uniform, right? When you have a unit of Ethereum or of Bitcoin, it's always Ethereum or Bitcoin, right? This is a, it's a fungible token. Like when you have a US dollar, it's a US dollar and every US dollar is worth the same thing at the same point in time, like fungibility of an asset. That's really kind of the core difference. So when you're, when you're trading Bitcoin or Ethereum or all of these other cryptocurrencies, when you're sending them back and forth, you can drop that Bitcoin, or Ethereum onto any exchange, right? You can deposit it into an account to sell it for US dollars. And it's worth the same amount across all of these networks. Similar if you moved to your Ford stock from like a Charles Schwab account over to Fidelity or E-Trade. So it's more like a, a share of something. It's it's kind of like a unit of stock or a unit of gold that sometimes gets used like a currency, but it, it blends a lot of features of different assets. So think about that more closely associated to like stocks or money. But you can use that same immutability, that same tracking system for things that aren't fungible, for things that aren't just like an asset or a stock or a unit of currency. You can do that with a piece of digital art. And that's all that's happening in the same way that you can use blockchain. If you sent me a unit of Bitcoin, Julia, I could follow it back to its origins on the network and I could see every wallet it had ever gone into and out of. And none of those transaction records in the 11 year history of Bitcoin have ever been changed. It's that secure of a network. Like there is no way to change transaction records, which makes it, again, a very safe way to move money around if you're concerned with people changing records and claiming they own something that they don't. Like that can't happen with crypto. That also makes it very compelling for digital art, right? Like if you buy a digital art piece and someone goes, no, I have the original, if they can claim they have the original, it makes the whole engagement pretty much useless. But if they can't, you can now create economies of scale where people can transact into and out of a unique piece of art that's released on one of these networks. And if you own it, you really own it. And no one at any point ever can say that you don't own it, they own it, or that some fake version of it is actually the original. It becomes an impossible proposition, which makes it a really interesting way to you know trade art back and forth.
0: And it might also be a form of security because you know, people that collect famous works of art, it's seen as an investment, you know, or collecting property. It's just seen as, as an investment that's going to grow over time and become more valuable over time. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah. And the, the record keeping can be tied to physical items, too. So like that's that gets deep into the weeds on blockchain. But pretty much imagine you buy a house and uh, instead of you getting a deep, they give you like an NFT or crypto equivalent. You You have something that's stored in a wallet. And someone's like, no, I own this house. But what you have is like a transaction record for the purchase of it that's unchangeable versus like a piece of paper that burns down, you know, in a house fire. So, like, there, it's a record keeping system is pretty much what underlies a cryptocurrency or NFTs. Like, that's the value problem. People go, you know, it's vaporware. Like, it isn't backed by anything. That's what it's backed by. It's the only form of assets, of money, of art that have ever been immutably tracked in a way where you, cannot alter transaction records. Like the code is written in a way where that becomes impossible.
0: So are there additional like legal or accounting burdens that nonprofits need to know about when they are thinking about trying to, you know, create the system to accept crypto donations?
1: No, not if they're taking assets. So if if a nonprofit accepts stocks, they know the deal where there's like, you know, 8282s and 8283s on the the donor and the nonprofit side, respectively, we have a, a process that automates that. And then tax receipt that the donor needs gets automatically generated. So that's taken care of. It's just a matter of like your bookkeeping, which is just like a report that you pull off of our dashboard, which has all of the transaction data. And then you reconcile that the same way you would with stocks or other assets. So it's all super similar from a compliance standpoint. Yes, like if you open up a wallet somewhere, that could be an issue. But like the way we do it is with an exchange. So we pretty much, our whole platform is built on top of a crypto exchange, which is the equivalent of like a Fidelity, but for crypto. So all of those considerations in terms of like KYC AML, and then like SOC1, SOC2 compliance, blocking transactions from sanctioned countries, all of the concern points, those get handled on the exchange level.
0: This is going to sound like a silly question to you, but I'm sure some of my listeners are wondering, so you do get all of the information on this donor, and you can then cultivate them after?
1: Sure, if you want to. We actually have an anonymous option the nonprofits can turn on or off. The majority of our clients, funny enough, will leave the anonymous option on, which I know people are always like, can we do that? The nonprofits always say, it. it's like, if you do it already, then fine. If you don't, then just turn it off. It's always kind of surprising to people like how many nonprofits accept the anonymous option. We've always put it up there just because like, from a, a donor privacy rights standpoint, it seems appropriate. One of our biggest early donors, for context, it was a closeted gay man from the, the South and sent a couple million dollars to a nonprofit, like an LGBTQ org, and wrote like the most beautiful note of all time where they're just like, I've never been able to do anything like this because I don't have an anonymous option and I'm absolutely not going to trust a nonprofit with like all of my personal information tied to this big transaction that's like related to their lifestyle. So anyway, if you're a nonprofit who doesn't want to accept anonymous gifts, you just turn that off. It obviously creates more friction, but you turn that off and then yes, you get all of the details that they enter into their donor form coupled with the transaction data and you steward them in accordance with your policies.
0: This just goes into the mindset shift that needs to start happening and hopefully has happened because I work with a lot of my clients on Facebook fundraising or Instagram fundraising and you don't get the donor data. And that's the huge point of contention for a lot of organizations. And to me, if you're going to get $2 million from someone, that's worth it to keep that name anonymous. Yes, you want to steward them. Yes. You want to call them up and ask them for gifts again and take them out to lunch and do all of that stuff. But everything right now is on the donor's terms. And for instance, if there wasn't an anonymous option at this particular organization, I'm sure this gentleman would have looked for another organization where it would be anonymous because it was that important to him. So we need to really start shifting our thinking around you know, are we doing things because we want them to, because it's always been this way because of status quo, or are we doing things because it's going to benefit the donor and it's actually going to help us raise this discretionary funding that we desperately need that we can then turn and, and help grow our organization. So that's really interesting. I agree. I think that the nonprofits should have an anonymous option because like you said, it removes friction and, Money is money at the end of the day. That's really how I think about it. I send you a $20 bill in the mail without a name on it. You're still going to cash it, hopefully, and still use it. And what I really found interesting is I read the the study by Fidelity Charitable that found that crypto owners are actually more charitable than the typical investor. But sadly, 46% of these donors found it difficult to find nonprofits that accepted donations. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, that's
1: a big part of why we exist. So on top of like setting up nonprofits to take it, like we built the main crowdfunding platform where donors go to find nonprofits to donate crypto to. We've, we've operated that since like 2019. We created the industry's giving pledge, which like Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, Rain Wilson, who's Dwight from The Office, are like some notable people who have taken it. And then FTX, you know, the crypto exchange that bought the Miami Heat Stadium, like these big companies and crypto millionaires and billionaires, like they didn't have an industry giving pledge. They didn't have a platform to find nonprofits to give to. They didn't have Crypto Giving Tuesday from the Giving Tuesday Foundation. We created a community campaign with them. We created NF Tuesday for the NFT community, the bag season end fear campaign, the tax season education with like Friedman and Taxbit, the software companies, like the bridge between nonprofits and donors, like that connective tissue, that infrastructure hasn't existed. So it's this really bizarre position that we're in, where not only for us, but for the nonprofits, like this isn't a donation method, it's a donor demographic. And the nonprofits who get that are fundraising crypto actively, they're fundraising from crypto donors in the way that you wouldn't say it's a stock donor, it's a stock donation. Crypto isn't like that. Like it's a it's a donor community. There's 300 million of these people who have crypto now. Like the size and scale of the I guess donor side, and then the amount of transaction volume versus how many nonprofits are even trying to get into it is like absurdly out of whack and unsustainable. So it's it's a tremendous opportunity for nonprofits, and most of it just comes from. Not paying attention. Like, if you told a nonprofit, you were like, Ethereum did $1.2 trillion more in transaction volume than Visa last year, it's like they did 11.6 trillion in one year of transaction volume. Like, nonprofits probably wouldn't believe or understand that. Or if you were like, 95% of hedge funds either have or are investing into crypto actively, when you talk to like a university endowment and they're like, should we be looking at this crypto thing? when you're like, it's the best performing asset class of the last decade, you know, it's been around 11 years, like it's older than Instagram. Like, yeah, you should probably, I'm not saying buy it at any given point in time. It could be overvalued, undervalued, but there's hundreds of millions of people using it. And the market caps are getting pretty absurd.
0: It's so interesting to me. It seems like when fundraising on Twitch was just starting out and so many of the creators... On Twitch, the world's largest live streaming platform, if people don't know Twitch, they were raising millions of dollars for some of the early adopters, some of the nonprofits that were sort of early adopters and really understood the power and the potential that could come with it. And I think the challenge has always been, for nonprofits especially, is that they feel like they don't have the full control over it. Like they don't have the control over the message. They don't have the full control over the donor Experience, they don't have the donor's information. And so that tends to frighten them, at least more traditional organizations. But you're absolutely right. I do think it's our responsibility, especially as there's going to be, you know, the biggest wealth transfer in history from boomers to millennials to Gen Z. I think it's our responsibility as fundraisers to at least learn about these things and you know, make a decision, make an educated decision as to whether or not we're going to set it up or not. I want to hear more about Crypto Giving Tuesday. I think that sounds really fun. Yeah. Just one
1: comment on the Twitch thing that you were touching on too. Like we, our integration with Tiltify is going live soon. So Tiltify is the main solution provider for, for streaming fundraising and what you're hitting on, Julia, like control over the experience and everything else. Like we're doing all of these integrations and it has nothing to do with crypto. Which is really fun. A lot of the value we provide has nothing to do with crypto. It's just like general fundraising best practices and designing platforms that work for donors kind of period. The control over the experience aspect, a different integration that we're working on with like a uh, live events software provider. They were talking about how nonprofits don't want recurring gifts at events because the event won't get credited for the donation volume and pretty much like people in their roles at the nonprofit are getting measured on the success of the event. So they'd rather have larger in-person transactions, even if it means less volume for the nonprofit over an annual period, because then it looks like their individual success is measured. And they were talking about as a solution provider, you're selling to those people. So now you have to provide products that make those people on the nonprofit say, oh, that's what I want even though it's obviously worse for the donor experience and is reducing the nonprofit's donation volume in like a very tangible way. And they're like, but if you build it that way, you sell more of this product. And they were explaining like from an ethical standpoint and then like a product development standpoint, how like the people working at nonprofits are creating these really perverse incentive models from a software development standpoint, which I just found really compelling. Like you were saying, control over the experience from the person buying the software. I think nonprofits definitely need to do a better job thinking about like what is best for the donor and what increases the nonprofit's donation volume over the long term. So just a a bit of a rant.
0: Oh, I love a good rant. And I completely agree. And I've been that development director that has worked events and you are 100% responsible for the return on investment of that event. And they didn't even, I remember when I worked at a certain event, it was years ago, my executive director didn't even want pledges. They wanted the money right then and there. And I said, well, if they're going to pay me $5,000 tonight or like, you know, pay towards make a donation, or if they're going to do $20,000 over three years, don't you think that might be a little bit better for us? But the entire, I think you're so right. the, The incentives are, this is what we need to do now. This is how we've always done it. We need to put this on the books right now. And then the other thing that you're talking about, what I'm hearing is what I see in the sector a lot is who's going to get credit. You know, is it the marketing department? Is it the fundraising department? Is it the events person? Is it the volunteer person? And the constant fighting over, you know, who's going to get credit for this? Because when I think of Twitch, I think of fundraising, but I also think of marketing. It's a fantastic opportunity to market your organization to millions of people that might not have heard of you and to get exposure and visibility. So I do think that opportunities like crypto philanthropy and Crypto Giving Tuesday, NF Tuesday, are opportunities to reach a new, more diverse, younger audience, which is what nonprofits so desperately want.
1: Oh, 100%. On the the attention piece, which is also why Twitch and crypto and everything aligns, We've had one nonprofit ever who did like a press release on accepting crypto where it wasn't their best performing of the year. So like just saying, hey, we take this stuff. I'm sure that's unsustainable, obviously, long term. It's, it's getting to the point where it's mainstream enough where it's not that earth shattering to just be taking it. But like we could just go down the list of like when, when American Cancer Society just tweeted, we accept Doge. Like when we, we listed Dogecoin, which is like a meme coin, but it's got a very exciting online following, uh, super active when they tweeted out that they accept it, we just created this copy and paste message for all our charities to say, hey, we accept this now. Like their tweet got like 12,000 retweets like immediately, which is absurd. I think it was their second best performing piece of social content ever. And then like the leadership at ACS, which is kind of funny, they were like, how do we go all in on Doge? And we were like, don't do that. (laughs) Like, don't, don't be a meme. Like I know Doge is very fun. Like, let's just take it as a win and keep moving. Like keep the identity, but. In short, to to get to your point about these campaigns, like they're not just the most exciting part of like our clients' day, like which is a cool part of doing crypto philanthropy, right? Like we're the most exciting vendor they get to work with, the campaigns we work on are the most exciting, they get the most engagements, they get the youngest audience. It's just kind of fun and and there's a silliness to it, but also just like an activity level that can be inspiring. Crypto Giving Tuesday, and then like our end of year campaign in December, generally speaking, we do like a quarter of our volume in the last month of the year, but we've had, despite that, our volume has increased every quarter other than a slight drop off between Q4 of 2020 into Q1 of 2021. So with that one slight step down over the last six quarters, it's gone up quarter after quarter, after quarter, after quarter, despite the fact that we usually see that end of year surge. So this quarter is going to beat out our end of year last year. And then hopefully that ball keeps rolling. We do tens of millions of of dollars just on like our internal campaign for Crypto Giving Tuesday into bag season, that month of December, long campaign. And then like the campaign we're running now, the Caring with Crypto, one, we've raised a little under $10 million. in. I guess it's been a little under three weeks that we've been running this campaign. The Water Project, actually, we just highlighted them. They're amazing. Peter and their team are like super innovative, but they raised on their end, a million dollars in crypto in less than two weeks. And then that's matched. We have a $10 million match pool right now from Shift4. So they had a $4.4 million budget, right, that they set for this year, like their revenue target. They raised half of that in two weeks through a crypto campaign, through like activating their their OG crypto base. In, in short, they've been fundraising crypto for many years. They switched to us after a couple years of doing it. And so they've been building a crypto audience for like a four-year period. The longer people fundraise crypto, obviously, the... The more they fundraise as they build up their base, but yeah, that that one activation of his his donor base for a, a big caring with crypto campaign that we ran raised half their organization's budget in in two weeks.
0: I see fundraising as knocking down obstacles to giving and creating a great donor experience and letting them tell you on their terms how they want to give. And amen. If any listeners, if you agree with that. Definitely, definitely, definitely check out the Giving Block. Pat, where can people connect with you? Where can they learn more about what you do and your services? Yeah, I kind of mentioned at the beginning when we talk about endowments, which is
1: like we, we have like a University of Alabama and like UNC and some big schools who are building programs with us now. But like when we get to the endowment office, I'll just use this analogy to segue into how they can find us. We set up the nonprofits, like the arm of the university to accept crypto. And then the endowments always come to us and they're like, should we be looking at crypto? And we're like, your job is to manage a big pile of money, like really effectively, right? And over the last 10 years, crypto is the best performing asset class. Over the last five years, it's the best performing asset class. Just create like a multi-year block and then compare it to everything else you can put money into. It's outperformed that for more than a decade. So yeah, you should probably be looking at it. However, the final point is like, you can say no. Like, no is fine, at least a short-term no. I'm sure every nonprofit over any extended period of time will accept crypto. But maybe not now, right? Like maybe you have to mobile optimize your site more effectively or you've got a need to take Venmo on college campuses. Like you should have a list of innovative priorities and put them in order and attack them accordingly. But you should get to a yes or a no on crypto as quickly as possible, right? Because the the ratio of donors to nonprofits is unsustainable and the groups who are doing this right now are fundraising really effectively. So to answer your question, I would go to the thegivingblock.com click the accept crypto button and just get on the phone with someone who can run you through a needs assessment and pretty much figure out if like your needs and opportunities make sense. And then just like take that away and figure out if you want to attack it or not in accordance with your other priorities that you have as an organization. I would do that as quickly as possible. And of course, especially if you're a smaller nonprofit with a bunch of foundational stuff to, to build, like it might not be time for you to get into it. But at the very least, like figure out if it is. Figure
0: out if it is. Well, on that note, thank you so much for being here today. i really learned a lot. My mind has been completely opened and I I hope that everyone's listening with an open mind and going to check out the giving block. So thanks again, Pat, for being here. Yeah. Thanks, Julia. Appreciate it. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then you can find me on Instagram at Julia Campbell, keep changing the world. You nonprofit unicorn.